ballyhooing Hollywood Where any office boy or young mechanic Can be a panic with just a good-looking pan What's up, listeners? This is David Blakesley welcoming you to episode 95 of the Criterion Reflections podcast which I and a few guests are going to be talking about Peter Bogdanovich's 1972 comedy, What's Up, Doc?, starring Barbara Streisand, Ryan O'Neill, Madeline Kahn, and a pretty awesome supporting cast. Really happy to have a chance to talk about a flat-out comedy. We don't really get a lot of these on on the Criterion Reflections podcast. Uh, Criterion does have its share of funny movies. But for the most part, they, they tend to be on the more serious side, and, and it's nice to have a, a real a real farce, uh, just uh, just something that's made for pure entertainment value. Um, and so just to kind of get the obvious things out of the way, uh, people might be wondering, why are we talking about What's Up, Doc? Well, it is a Criterion film in a very slim sense. It's been featured on the Criterion channel a couple times over the past few years. Back when it was uh, part of the Filmstruck situation, the Criterion Channel did a, I think it was a Peter Bogdanovich um, package, a bundle. And then I think last year it was a Barbara Streisand bundle. And so uh, both of those uh, luminaries kind of graced us with the opportunity to get this uh, you know, pretty, pretty popular property into the Criterion canon, at least as far as how I define it. So it's, I think, available on a Warner Archive Blu-ray and maybe some other platforms. I actually purchased a, a streaming copy of it, so that's how I am able to watch it over and over again. Uh, but anyways, that's the technicalities. It is a Criterion film as far as I'm concerned, even though it's probably not likely that we're going to see a Criterion disc for the foreseeable future. But what a film it is, and uh, what a great group I've got together to uh, talk about it. So I'm going to start by introducing his season four premiere debut, William Remmers. William, welcome back to the show. Good to have you back on. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm delighted to reconnect with you. It's been a while. So uh, for regular listeners, you know, William's been a pretty staple sidekick here for me, among many others, uh, frequent contributors. Uh, tell us how things have been going for you in the, in the year 2021. Fine. The, the, the new president. So I like that. More importantly, not the old president, but the, that that's the best part. I got second Pfizer this week as a teacher. They, they, I got that done. So move, making steps ahead. I'm and um, in, enjoying the, the pandemic as a chance to take a break from doing theater nonstop and that kind of thing. And um, I, I saw, I think last year, Letterboxd, including uh, shorts and features all together, was like 900 movies I saw last year. So <laughs> that was great. I was I got no complaints about that. That's that's not hyperbolic. 900. <laughs> I think 700, 750 were features. So that's. That's uh, not just all Looney Tunes. So, like, it really, it really worked out. <laughs> and um, oh. and uh, and I was pleased. I'm pleased to be here. We'll get into the What's Up Doc thing. But you, you're right. This was a filmstruck thing. So this has been a long time coming. And I, I would have just seen it around the time you first put it on the spreadsheet. And um, I have the date here. I first saw it in November 2017. So it gives you an idea of when filmstruck was. And uh, th- you're right about yeah. that bundle. And um, and I was doing this for the past uh, t- two or three years that say, David, don't take it off the spreadsheet. 
And then I think when it came back on the Criterion channel, I felt pretty confident that we were going to do it after all. I think it may have been an italicized title for a while. Like, maybe we won't get to this. Maybe it's not official, <laughs> but I'm happy we're doing it. Well, yeah, you know, I am too, especially since we've got a couple other excellent guests, uh, both new to the po- program, and I'll introduce them in just a second. But you're right, this this is this is pretty lightweight stuff, um, but totally worthy of, of, uh, of the conversation. So, uh, and, and where is Utopia Opera? At? I just wanted to kind of check in because I know that was a pretty oh, big yeah. project, a big thing. Are, are you still together or, or is it on hiatus? So yeah, I mean, well, the th- it's a truth be told. It's really just me. It's just me with the name of a company, right? Like I, I can unilaterally make decisions as the, the company, but, um, okay. so I decided I didn't want to put out any, um, kind of half cooked online things. And I didn't want to put in the effort or spend the money to do a really good online thing and make none of the money back. So I'm very happy to just wait until we can do our live theater again and sell full theaters and feel comfortable with it. And Mm -hmm. um, so as far as yeah, theater in New York, I just kind of took the, took that back seat and I'm enjoying, um, enjoying things I didn't have as much time to do when I was doing shows all the time and including seeing more movies per year about triple the usual amount. And um, I, I do have a few projects and ideas. We have our April Fools coming up soon, which I always do something. And right now, uh, opera in New York City is quite a, a tempest because of how badly the Met handles pretty much every public relations <laughs> moment uh, possible. Yeah, yeah. And um, so fuck them. I can't, like, like, if that's what people are aspiring to, it's very disheartening to want to be in this weird niche industry where, 0.2% of the people in the world don't people even know it exists, let alone are that interested in it. And it's, it's a bit difficult, you know, like I don't want to um, uh, live for that goal. I like doing my weird independent black box, strange, goofy stuff, especially comedies, which is what we do best. And I think we'll probably do exclusively after the pandemic because I don't really have too much more uh, energy for uh, the tragedy operas and, and being in that rehearsal room for that, those weeks, I'd rather just be having fun. So um, the show we postponed was a, was April fool's production of Carmen, which would have been in the vein of a company called La Grande Chena opera and number other, other companies from back when who would do parodic versions of the straight dramas and um, utilizing whatever sort of tropes and local references could be thrown in. And that will only be funnier now because of what the Met is doing. So I'm looking forward to my chance yeah. to lambast them on a, on a wide scale and um, hopefully encourage them to fire Peter Gelb, who's in charge, who's the worst. But um, anyway, that's opera is just like a thing, you know, and um, I, I can very easily not do it for two years. Luckily, it doesn't doesn't hurt. I can listen to it and then enjoy it. Then uh, I I don't have I can play it on the piano, get that fix but i'm not uh, not starving i'm happy for the pandemic to last until it is safe for us to uh to go back in well and i'm glad that you've been able to weather the you know the financial storm and the disruption to all the plans that i've been working on uh, you're a man of many skills and talents and i'm glad that you're keeping it you know keeping it moving along so good to hear from me absolutely uh second guest and this is uh, the first of the two introductions uh premieres, rookies, you know, newbies, whatever you want to call them. But but uh, welcoming you to my podcast, Eric Grant. Welcome to Criterion Reflections. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be, I think, your first TikTok guest. 
That's right. Yeah, I have been pretty active on TikTok. That's been kind of my new thing for 2021. And you and I crossed paths. And I think you picked up somewhere in one of my mentions that I was going to be doing a podcast about what's up, Doc. And that kind of, you know, triggered the alarm. And he said, I got to get in on this. Tell me a little bit more about your thoughts and, and about yourself. Yeah, well, I, it's funny. I was entering, I had just seen um, Il Sorpasso and I was entering my review on Letterboxd mostly talking about how how I loved how gay it was and how it could have been even gayer. And, 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 and I didn't expect to love that movie nearly as much as I did. And right when I kind of submitted that Letterboxd review, I saw on your page that you would um, put up on the favorites that you're doing. What's up, Doc? Next. And I said, I turned my boyfriend. I said, I have to get in on this. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm just going to message him on TikTok and hopefully he'll, he'll let me join the show. Um, and then it seems I have a bit of a kindred spirit with Will here um, because I similarly started um, a lot of my theater career doing assistant directing in opera and being in kind of the opera world. And then once I really focused on being in Chicago, where I um, now run a, a, a a film production company, I found that I was like, Oh, you know, I really enjoy seeing opera and I don't think I enjoy making it as much anymore. And I started focusing on comedy and kind of the, the neo futurists and that kind of zany world as well. So yeah, I, um, that's kind of a, uh, an easier summation of what I do more than what I had had kind of prepared. Um, I'm back home in Michigan right now because um, What's Up Doc is one of my mother's favorite movies. And today of this recording, it is uh, her birthday. So it kind of all came together really nicely. That's a nice little symmetry there. And it's also nice to have a fellow Michigander in the crew here. And I look forward to potentially working with you again, Eric. I really do appreciate your boldness and initiative and in contacting me. Uh, you, know, you, you filled the perfect spot there. So Really happy to have you on board. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Uh, and then my third guest, Rodney Hill. He's an associate professor at Hofstra University over there on Long Island, department head for film studies. Rodney, welcome to the show. Really happy to have you on board. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. And, uh, you know, teaching film at Hofstra uh, uh, allows me to think about film history and great directors and film genres uh, all the time. And I, I feel really very fortunate to, to have a gig like that. And, uh, you know, our, our program at Hofstra really attracts a lot of filmmakers that that's primarily what our students want to do, whether it be screenwriting or directing or, uh, cinematography or whatever. But we, we think that film history is a very important tie into that, that if somebody wants to be a great filmmaker, they need to know about the great films of the past. And so that's that's kind of what I do uh, uh, in my day job is uh, is uh, teach these kids about film history and they generally uh, really enjoy it. And I've I've uh, had the pleasure of teaching some of Bogdanovich's films, uh, not this one, but uh, maybe one day. I, th- I think this would play well with with young people. So yeah, it's uh, th- this has always been a favorite of mine, and uh, I-, I can't resist making this joke with uh, with Will and Eric. Uh, what's opera, Doc? You know, I mean, it was just it, it was served just itself there. right up there. It was just <laughs> sitting there. I had to. I had yeah. to take it. 
Yeah. Now, Rodney, I know, and you're in. You were referred by a friend to contact me. I, I'm not even sure it was it Michael Pally. Is that his name? Yeah, Michael. I think is a big fan of the podcast, and I believe he has also signed up for some future episodes. I actually thought okay. I thought he had been on an episode before, but apparently not. But he's he's an avid listener. And he said uh, that I should contact you, and uh, I, I did. I think you sent me the uh, the spreadsheet uh, at mm-hmm. one point, and I signed up for. I guess this was the earliest film that I had signed up for. I think maybe I signed up for a couple of other things post nineteen seventy two. And uh, yeah, Michael uh, is a, a huge fan of all things Criterion, and a really really brilliant uh, film analyst, although just a, sort of an amateur film analyst mm-hmm. uh, and sort of like uh, me i guess yeah just a, it's a hobby but you get into yeah, it and but you, it's, you uh, learn a few things along the way right and you know that's great i think uh people who are really into something like that end up being more serious than people like me sometimes so uh so yeah michael suggested that i contact you and uh, especially since i've i've been fortunate enough to work with criterion on a couple of their releases uh the mm. the uh, the jacques demy box set um, they, that's the first project I did with them. One of their producers, Kate Elmore, uh, called me up and, uh, I think they were trying to get David Boardwell, who has done obviously a lot of work for them. And David is a former professor of mine at the uh, university of Wisconsin. And, uh, David was kind enough to refer them to me because he knew that I'd done, uh, some work on Jacques Demy. And I uh, ended up doing uh, sort of a commentary for them on The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, which apparently went well. And um, about a year later, one of their other producers, uh, Curtis uh, Chui, uh, called me up uh, about Dr. Strangelove because uh, he knew that I was also a big Kubrick uh, person. And I also am a big Coppola person. And so about a year after that, Curtis uh, uh, invited me to do a little piece for their uh, release of Rumblefish, so I, I, you know, I could die happy uh, being on the doc- <laughs> uh, on the Doctor yeah. Strange Love disc and on the on a Coppola disc. Uh, you know, I I was very very pleased and very fortunate to be on there. So I'm glad this has led me to you. Well, I'm very pleased and very fortunate to have you on. It's like we're like one level closer to the inner circle there. (laughs) Very, very cool. So anyways, yeah, so we've got three outstanding guests, each with their own sort of angle and passion about this film. So let's get into what's up, Doc. Uh, And we typically start with maybe a little bit of a a synopsis. William, can I ask you to kind of give us just a little walk into this movie? What's it about? And and what's the gist of, uh, of this film? I can, and um, I I will do it in a couple ways consecutively, but I want you to pretend that they were simultaneous just for sort of the philosophical uh, bent. Um, I love the stock synopsis of this film, which is, I think, what was also on TCM when I watched it recently, where in um, the TCM intro uh, gave um, one of their TCM backlot members program nights that they do from time to time, I suppose, and someone brought this movie in as their favorite choice they wanted TCM to do. And Ben Mankiewicz talked with this woman about it who says she watches it with her daughter every year as like their favorite movie. And it really is a movie that has many people's favorite movies, as I'll get into shortly. But the synopsis was, and this is on IMDb as well, 
The accidental mix-up of four identical plaid overnight bags leads to a series of increasingly wild and wacky situations. And that, to me, is a perfect synopsis if you want someone <laughs> to just get in the door. They also could know who's in it, sure, but when you get to nitty-gritty of the plot of this movie, it will be unfunny very fast. Because <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah. you just need the one little sort of MacGuffin idea of we're going to mix some stuff up and characters will collide. And... Uh, to, to really um, get the synopsis across, I wanted to um, bring some words that I asked my friend Gary to contribute. My friend Gary Slavin is a stage director, and he and I have collaborated on a number of musicals, operettas, and operas. And long before I ever saw What's Up, Doc, he told me it was his favorite movie. And so I asked him, what would he contribute to our discussion? And he gave me a little, a little piece of writing that I will share with you now. Every frame is funny, and no one is being funny. Like a Looney Tune, the situations ridiculous and improbable are accepted as entirely true and logical. And on top of that, over and over, it's shot like a cartoon. Judy disappearing down the escalator saying, see, etiquette with her arm in the air is Bugs disappearing into his rabbit hole. And don't get me started on the sound and sight like the skid marks on the floor as Eunice is being dragged out of the banquet. Howard's <laughs> takes to the camera are any one of those characters from Looney Tunes pulling out a sign. Help. Nobody pushes a traveling case across the floor in the middle of the night with his nose, except in a cartoon or this movie. And every character is interesting, including the guy behind the counter in the hotel gift shop. Bogdanovich et al., including Buck Henry, figured out how to make a cartoon happen live. Nobody here knows they are in a comedy. And uh, I th think that's completely true. And, and my first take, when I first saw it, knowing how much he liked it, is... Uh, I thought it was the funniest movie I'd ever seen. Just flat out. I'm like, this I'm, I, This is that November 2017. And I had felt I had lost hope for comedy as a genre. Maybe <laughs> one reason I'm drawn to the, the type of movies we tend to talk about is because I think comedy, especially in long form, is very difficult to maintain, you know, longer than seven, eight minutes, longer than a single reel. It's very hard for me to think things are still funny. And a lot of the films that may even be in Criterion Collection that are considered comedies, um, I don't jive with in that kind of way. But this particular film, and I think everything my friend Gary said supports it, meets me and my sense of humor uh, spot on in terms of how we're going to see those four plaid overnight bags, um, which I thought about making a spreadsheet or chart to track, but then I realized that would make it so much less funny <laughs> if I just yeah. let it happen and enjoy the experience um obviously i think that the the film has uh, a benefit of a great director great writers um great cinematographer but it's most essentially barbara streisand and ryan o'neill's movie for me and as much as we see a looney tune to watch bugs get into hijinks how wonderful is it to see barbara streisand in her second buck henry scripted comedy where she bites a carrot um having those Bugs Bunny moments, herself being Bugs Bunny, the funniest person to ever live, I think she proves in this one movie, which she doesn't like, apparently, but um, it's quite remarkable. So the two of them together, everything that I've said before is my synopsis of the movie. It's the energy of the movie more than the nitty gritty of what actually happens, though I'm sure we'll get into uh, all of all of that because we get, need to know what rocks sound like. And you could address you could address plot elements and instantly yeah. get a laugh. Yeah, a like I know. I, I'm just laughing because your words are just triggering all these memories and sensations. But uh, Eric, go ahead and give us kind of your 
quick intro. What's your? Uh, you mentioned it's one of your your mom's favorite. Uh, yeah, take the lead. Yeah, well, I I actually thought it was interesting what Will was saying about how it's difficult to keep up comedy more than eight minutes or so, and they managed to keep ninety minutes where it never drags. And I have a note about that where I'm every time I've watched this movie. I think, oh, it's a good 90 minutes. That's an easy hour and a half, whatever. And every time we get to the courtroom scene where it's just kind of the wrap up, like, let try try and tell me what happened here in this movie. I think, God, are we already here? I I could <laughs> I want more. Yeah. I, I we get to the courtroom scene, which is I think my favorite part of the movie, certainly my my mother's favorite part of the movie, as she's also a, a, a circuit court judge. So <laughs> I, you know, I get to that okay. moment, I think, oh, please give me more before this because I feel like I haven't gotten enough yet. Um, so, but I, whenever I think of this movie, I think I think of it as a little beat up VHS cassette box in the house I grew up in and my mom saying do you want to watch what's up doc I love this movie and then she goes we can just skip to the courtroom scene if you want it's the best scene of the movie um and I hadn't seen it in a long time before I wanted to kind of prepare for for this podcast and watching it again after maybe 10-15 years I am kind of amazed at how well it still holds up I, I think in the back of my mind I expected there to me to be kind of jokes that weren't really you know they were more off color to us now and things like that and i was surprised that every kind of beat just keeps moving and every joke still lands so well and i think that um having seen a lot of (laughs) barbara streisand movies i i think my like controversial opinion is that this is the most magnetic she is in in any movie i every time she's on screen i'm like yes I want to watch whatever she's doing. I don't care about anyone else. I want to watch she's, what she's doing. And um, and I I think I'm always amazed that this isn't more of like a queer camp classic, considering that it has Streisand and Madeline Kahn. And I don't know what anyone else would want from a movie except those two. <laughs> Plus, it has That's... Ryan O'Neill running around in his boxers. Not bad. Exactly. You know? so, yeah, you know, yeah, you know. yeah. It's the cherry on top. Yeah. <laughs> So, Rodney, kind of give us your opening take on this film, and then we'll start getting into the particulars right after that. Well, I would agree with everything that Will and Eric have said. And I I think another thing that makes this film work so well for me is that Bogdanovich really learned a lot from the masters, right? I mean, obviously, uh, it's well known that this is uh, kind of a take on Howard Hawks style, uh, you know, romantic comedy, screwball comedies. And pretty directly uh, a kind of take on bringing up baby, but with, with some other things thrown in. So just the, the rapid fire dialogue, the craziness of the situations, the, the sexual innuendo at a time when you didn't have to do sexual innuendo anymore, but he did. And it's funny. I mean, the, 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 the rocks that don't touch the igneous rocks, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's crass, it's obvious, but it's mm-hmm. funny. Uh, when the cabbie says, I hate it when my igneous rocks are even touched, it's just uh, somehow that that still works. And the, the, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the awkward professor and the chaotic female thrown together uh, is right out of Howard Hawks. Um, so, I, you know, Bogdanovich really learned from the best, I think. And, and he, he brings that sense of film history to the best of his work. And I think this is one of, one of his best films and not, not only the, the great leads, but all of these marvelous supporting actors, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you have people like M.M. at Walsh as the bailiff and you have, I mean, 
uh, Kenneth Mars, the great Kenneth mm -hmm. Mars. My goodness, he's just perfect as uh, the rival for the grant. Uh, so all of the, all these performances are just just spot on, and Bogdanovich certainly knows how to handle his directors. He's also a, he's a master of mise en scène, really uh, just a great great filmmaker. And even though his career has had its ups and downs, I think anything that he's ever done is is always worth watching. Uh, but it, it's hard to top. The, these sort of early 70s masterpieces of his, including this and uh, The Last Picture Show and uh, Paper Moon. You take those three films together. What more could you ask from a filmmaker than to give us those? I mean, then any anything else he's done is just, you know, gravy on top of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's as strong of a three-film run as you could put them up against just about anybody. And and we often do start our episodes by focusing on the director. This is kind of an auteurist-driven podcast, as you could say. So let's get into the Bogdanovich angle on this. You know, he had just come off of the last picture show, and I was just kind of checking the uh, the archive here. It's just about a year ago today that. Uh, we did, and I published our episode about the last picture show. And none of you were on this, obviously, um, you know, both first time guests and then William. Uh, but we had a very, you know, stacked cast for that one as well. And it was a really great episode. Uh, it, it's one of those films, like when you're in the middle of watching, it's like, oh, this is just cinematic perfection. I mean, he just nails everything. And so, you know, he, he really switches gears pretty dramatically. You know, the last picture show was got. It's suffused with melancholy and nostalgia, uh, coming of age. I mean, just so many things. And now he goes to this kind of zany, you know, color comedy. There's a retro throwback angle there. And and even the marketing of this film, I've got, you know, the original posters that I use in the show notes, you know, screwball comedies, remember them? So even in 1972, he's he's kind of doing a throwback thing. And... And, and maybe we can get into some of the, the mixed critical response because there was a sizable contingent of critics who weren't buying it at the time. But Bogdanovich had a lot of success with this film. He put it out there as a good time, night out at the movies, you know, laugh your butt off and have a lot of fun with it. And I think the public really responded. I think this was like the number two or three top grossing film besides uh, The Godfather and what was the other one? The Poseidon Adventure, I think, was the other big hit of 1972 so you've got a you know a big dramatic you know family crime saga and a big budget disaster pick so it's it's not a guaranteed lock that what's up doc was going to be as successful as it was but it was very successful and of course ryan o'neill and barbara streisand both really hot superstars at their time uh, i agree with what you say erica barbara is completely magnetic and, and charismatic and and you know, just steals the show. But I think everybody does their share. And, uh, you know, as far as Barbara not liking the film, maybe she was just like right in the eye of the storm and had her own sort of sense of it. But, you know, she can make about what she will. I think she's brilliant and it's, it's quite a delight. But let, let's talk about Bogdanovich as far as his, um, his his approach to this, this filmmaking. I mean, there is definitely a lot of his... Um, experience, his study of, of cinema, uh, being sort of refined and filtered into this movie. Uh, Rodney, do you know a little bit more about how this project came to be? Like what steered him to say, this is the next movie I'm going to make after this, you know, very critically well-received 
uh, award-winning film, The Last Picture Show, he, he kind of goes off in a different direction and shows us a different angle of, of his skill set. Right. I, I know a little bit about that. I, I believe that he was offered a, a picture from Warner Brothers to star Barbara Streisand, but it was uh, to, intended to be a drama, and he wasn't really interested in, in directing her in a drama. And so uh, thought, well, why, why don't we do uh, a comedy, a romantic comedy instead? And I believe that, I mean, the story idea is essentially his it's a, a riff on the, the Howard Hawks comedy Bringing Up Baby from 1938 with Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. And uh, together with a couple of co-writers, they, they come up with a script and then they bring in Buck Henry to refine the script. Uh, so uh, to, to me, it seems natural that Bogdanovich would want to do a comedy because, you know, the last picture show has its share of comedy as well. I mean, we, we, we do think of it as a, a very serious drama, which it is, but there's some really funny stuff in there. The, the, uh, interactions with, with Sybil Shepard and, and, uh, both Timothy Bottoms and, uh, Jeff Bridges, a lot of sort of sex comedy in that film as well. No, it seems like a, a natural choice to try to do something different that also is is harking back to old Hollywood in a way. And uh, to me, that's one of the fascinating things about Bogdanovich as one of these figures of this sort of Hollywood renaissance or new Hollywood is that he's much more of a throwback to classical Hollywood. And many of many of these new directors are trying to break with those old traditions and Bogdanovich is to some extent, I mean, he's, he's doing things that he couldn't get away with earlier, but he really is uh, very much, I think, a classical filmmaker at heart. And so it, it to me, it's just a wonderful tribute to Hawks and Preston Sturges and all, all those wonderful uh, comedic filmmakers uh, from the past. Yeah, yeah. I I watched Bring a Baby yesterday, actually, just to kind of, you know, check that out and, and see those more obvious parallels. And, and definitely the energy is there, the, the comic setups, even like the, the ripping of, of uh, Cary Grant's suit is like, you know, gesture for gesture. Uh, it's a it's a tribute, an homage, whatever. Um We've talked a lot about the, you know, the, the BBS box set and the other new Hollywood films where they tend to go into a little bit more of a, uh, almost like an aggressively countercultural angle. Here, Bogdanovich is, is kind of serving up nostalgia. This is, you know, before American Graffiti, but, but really bringing back sort of those happy memories and associations. And I think some of the older critics who, remembered those Hawks films almost as like as new releases or fond memories from their own childhood weren't buying it because maybe they felt this was too much of a formula or I don't know. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what, what the angle is there, but they, they just didn't seem to, to I'm talking about like people like um, Jay Cox from time magazine, Pauline kale. Uh, there are some other reviews that I've read from that era that are, you know, very warmly embracing of the film as well. Um, but it, you know, he connected with the public in, in a pretty spectacular way. And I think because it was distinctive, it, it felt fresh. It was, a, it was a break from all of the, the gloom and doom Vietnam race controversies. At the same time, it, it has aged much better than, say, like a Blazing Saddles, another, you know, flat-out comedy from that era where it's like 
some of it's still pretty funny, but some of it's still pretty cringy. And, and, you know, because they don't really cross those lines. It's, it's a very wholesome, there's a little bit of risque-ness, I suppose what you could say, but really this is, this is pretty family friendly stuff and, and still really hilarious and accessible across, you know, people who are young in the early seventies or people who are young in the 2020s. Um, yeah, who, who wants to kind of take it from there? What are some other thoughts you have, either on Bogdanovich, or we can get start getting into the, the, the leads, the stars? You 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 said it right, David, by talking about uh, the reaction at the time, not necessarily equating to the reaction today. And I think that the fact that, say, if you were like me, who sees this film only in this century, mm-hmm. and um, and can compare it even to the the films it references. Um, and see that they're they're similar, but they both deserve to exist equally, separate from each other. I think I think we probably all have bugbears of films which we think are derivative and not worthy of of necessarily having certain amounts of praise because um, they aren't original. But um, if you think about the screwball comedy era, there is a lot of um, repetition of beats anyway. I mean that you can mm-hmm. you can put Carrie Grant and Irene Dunn in two movies together and then. They can still have similar attitudes with each other and Grant and Hepburn as well. And this is funny because this exists in just a vacuum. And for me, is that much more special because um, almost an entire ethos. I mean, I, I can think about like really, really good screwball comedies like uh, The Awful Truth and think about how funny the scene is when Cary Grant's stuck behind the door. But I don't think any, I don't, I think if that scene is that funny, I think What's Up Doc is like that funny the whole time, mm-hmm. almost because Bogdanovich had all of that to fit into one movie. I think by the fact that he was making this because he wanted to, and it wasn't part of another cycle of films to go through. I mean, even uh, McCary said that he won the Oscar for the wrong film and even ranked Awful Truth below Make Way for Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So it's not like those films are necessarily even considered by I me. Mean, I don't know how Hawks would rank his films. I'm sure Bogdanovich knows because... If I, if you ever see Bogdanovich in a special feature on a disc, he will say the words Howard Hawks. He just, it's, and it's, it's just, the, it's just the truth. And we all know yeah. Howard Hawks, and he's he's there with his ascot, and he's the best friend of Orson Welles, um, and he was has happy to tell you that. And so um, he uh, he's getting all of this out in one expression, and I think that's why it's so dense and impactful uh, to the point that. Um, I would I would rather show someone this first now speaking from this century and then almost go like now that you're seeing this you might have an easier time going backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mm-hmm. and especially sensibilities change. Heck, it's in color that means a lot to some people nowadays. Um, and truthfully, this is now longer ago than those movies were from when this was made. So it's 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 weird how we can perceive time as if it, it doesn't have that kind of incrementation. but it, it's, Well, uh, we're, we're pushing 50 years now on What's Up, Doc, whereas the, that was, you know, Bring Up Baby was like, you know, 30 years earlier, you know? If uh, you think about what was 50 yeah. years before What's Up, Doc, it's like, it's incredible how different... Charlie Chaplin, are. early Chaplin, right. right, yeah. So I think you're absolutely right, and, and maybe why um, it, it appeals to folks like me and Eric is that we can we can see this film now and be like, wow, it's so fresh, and and I bet I hadn't seen as how even in 2017 maybe seen all the referential um, films I ought to have seen. If anything, this this stood out to me, and I said something as much on Letterbox that it stood out as funnier than I ever thought comedies from say the late 60s, early 70s ever are. 
And I think about the comedies like you mentioned, Blazing Saddles, which you compared it to. And I, th- I think of adjacent things like um, like the producers, uh, there's Kenneth Mars also mm-hmm. being very funny. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I and I think is so excellent when it's so excellent. But even then, I, I don't find as densely funny as this or a, another film that I can has a similar Michael Murphy part, Brewster McCloud, which mm-hmm. is still too dark and countercultural to be consistently funny in that same way. And has it and Altman's has it on a different MO anyway. Mm-hmm. Um so this this really exists on its own and and is adjacent to the Mel Brooks type things. It's adjacent even to Elaine May or other um, Buck Henry projects, but it's its own thing. And um, and as a lens through which to view films, say of the late '30s, I think would be very helpful for uh, younger fans who maybe don't know the films we're talking about that are older. Maybe see this first might be a recommendation to kind of get you on board. I would also say it'll get you on board with Barbara Streisand if you've been fed the lie that I was fed throughout the 1990s, that she is an egomaniac nightmare with no talent. And now I'm like, I've seen all the movies she's directed. They're all amazing. I've seen all the movies she's in. They're all amazing. Why was I fed this lie by the media in South Park and everyone that she's just a nightmare? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, yeah. So I, I, this, was, this was a turning point for me seeing this film. I'm like, Barbara's the best. So. Well, and I think I was fed that lie as a reason to like her even more. Oh, good. Because <laughs> I think, I, think I, I want a diva. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think going off of what Will and David, we were saying about, um, I, I, there's a sense to me that maybe some of the harsher criticism, besides just being, you know, it was much closer to when the screwball comedies came out that the reviewers were writing that they kind of maybe were thinking of their childhood and were kind of upset to see whatever Bogdanovich was doing. But I also have this sense from the harsher criticism from the time that a lot of... um, a lot of reviewers were still kind of thinking, oh, well, if this is something that's for the masses, then that's not really worth my time. That's not really, mm-hmm. you know, a capital F film kind of thing. And that's what I kind of got from a lot of the a lot of the criticism is that it was, oh, this is kind of this is like this is a people's movie. This is this is for kind of just people to to pay, you know, a cheap ticket and and go see whatever they want to see. And and they're not really here to watch The Godfather. They're not here to have fun. And I and I think that kind of connects to adjacent movies like what you're saying with Mel Brooks, where, you know, I I think Young Frankenstein is one of the greatest comedies of all time, probably because it was the first movie I memorized when I was like five years old. <laughs> but I but yeah. I find that movie to be just as densely funny in a completely different way, where Gene Wilder went into it saying, you know, I want to make a really smart riff off of Frankenstein, where it's densely funny for a very literary kind of a slightly kind of, I guess, more highbrow audience, I guess you could say. Um, and I and I find that to be almost, maybe that was the dichotomy of like, what's up doc is just, anyone can enjoy it. Anyone can see it even without like the sound on and know that it's funny. Whereas Young Frankenstein and kind of other comedies coming out in the late 60s, early 70s, were a little bit more, you know, well, we're going to play on the reverence and we're going to play on the the highfalutin kind of other films that are going on. Uh, something that, uh, something Will said made me, uh, think of, you know, uh, one, one of the reasons I really love Peter Bogdanovich so much is that he is, he is a connection to that early period of film history. So this idea that maybe people will, will discover screwball comedies through what's up doc. I think that Bogdanovich probably would be delighted by that, but, you know, uh, his background as a film critic, I think, is so important in 
in terms of how he positions himself as a certain kind of filmmaker. Uh, and, you know, he, he wrote some of the first book length studies of people like Hawks and Ford and Hitchcock and uh, Alan Dwan. I mean, so he, he was meeting these people when they were still alive and interviewing King Vidor. And so he really has this, this connection to the early days of the film uh, industry, uh, the earliest days of Hollywood with Dwan and Vidor and then with uh, Hitchcock as well. So I think he brings that, uh, that love of film history to his work. And the, the, I, I, again, to repeat, I think it's just, it's a wonderful notion that somebody might be turned on to film history through Bogdanovich's films. I think that's... Yeah, you know, and I think he's bringing a very positive regard. He's not doing this as some sort of academic or pedantic exercise. He, he loves film on a very genuine kind of heartfelt level. And he wants to like share the joy of, that style of filmmaking, which, you know, admittedly had fallen out of fashion. I think going back to that marketing piece, screwball comedies, remember them? It's almost like, hey, we could just use a laugh, you know? Uh, life was pretty heavy in the early 70s, and and for good, appropriate reasons. I mean, there was a lot of serious stuff going down, and uh, but that doesn't mean you've got to bog yourself down in, in misery or, or, you know, and... and there's still going to be that time for thinking about the serious things and about the controversies and the injustices and the, the wars and everything else. But, you know, you, you got to laugh and you got to have a, a chance to, to lighten the load a little bit. And I think that's what he's doing here. Uh, even Young Frankenstein is kind of, it is it is a popular you know, movie cast towards the masses, but it's an exercise in genre. This one doesn't feel like a genre thing. This is just like people going through life, mix up crazy stuff is happening, um, and I and I also think he's not he's not you know getting you know bogged down and, and no pun intended there, but in a 1930s early 40s homage. I mean, there's that whole car chase sequence, which is very much out of you know, Bullet and the French Connection and other types of, you know, revved up, you know, car chase scenes that were also a pretty big thing, you know, of pulling off these incredible stunts and, and, and you know, catching air as you're coming over the hills of San Francisco. Uh, so there is that sort of vicarious thrill of, of watching these cars smashing into each other. And, and you see different sequences where just that kind of uh, gut level humor is is is, is on display there. That was a much more recent phenomenon. Um, it, you know, I just watched it yesterday. I don't recall like, like a car chase scene and bringing up baby, you know, there, but there's a whole lot of verbal gymnastics and dynamics going on there, but, but there's other things, you, you know, that, that whole MacGuffin, the mixed up bags, uh, it's just, it's just a, a great platform. And, and in fact, I think it started with two and then it got to three and then they said, no, it's a, yeah, the fourth bag in there. So let's just kind of ramp up the confusion and, and the, you know, the, the manic energy of it. And I think that's the thing that really stuck out to me is like, how, you know, the, the trailer, the official trailer apparently featured Bogdanovich as part of the show. I mean, his name, his reputation was a big enough thing that he was kind of part of the, you know, Hey, let's check out what what Bogdanovich is doing, even though this is really only his second big breakout feature. Um, but by putting him kind of front and center, he's he's kind of inviting the viewer to get into the process of movie making. And and, and as I've rewatched this several times now, knowing how deliberate 
the process of making a movie is, how you're just filming a few seconds of what's going to wind up in the final take to keep that energy going and to put it all together so you feel like you're on this, you know, you know, full throttle roller coaster that's just going, going, going and doesn't stop. That's a very impressive technical achievement to, to keep the flow that that rapid over the course of 90 minutes when it's taken you many, many months of shooting scenes and keeping it all in sequence and putting it together. You know, again, I'd, I'd like to just kind of hear any of your thoughts, especially, you know, Rodney and Eric, you both had some, you know, advanced studies in either filmmaking uh, as an experience or, or just the academic process of learning how these things are put together. But, you know, just tell us a little bit, I mean, how, how, how does this work? I mean, how do you, keep everything together and edit it so tightly that the audience almost loses track of the labor that it went into making this thing unfold before our eyes. Well, I think the first thing you do is um, you make the uh, city very upset with you by driving three cars down the steps (laughs) of a park without a permit and damaging their um, (laughs) damaging the steps so completely that they've never been able to fix them. Right. I mean, that, there's some um, renegade stuff going on here too, for sure. Yeah. Well, I, I wish we knew how, I, I wish we knew how this works, right? If we, if we really knew we'd all be rich, right? I, I always think that it's an absolute <laughs> yeah. miracle that any film, that any film ever comes together and works. It really, I mean, given what you were saying, Dave, how hard it is just to get something on film and then to edit it together. So when a film does come together, it really, it, it's miraculous. And so there, there's, to me, there's always that X factor. I, I suppose it, it, you, you have to have somebody in charge who knows what works. And uh, uh, even, you know, my favorite, my favorite gag in this whole movie is something that you would never think would actually work. It, it, it seems like on paper, this would be a terrible idea, but it, it's when Sorrel Book is, trying is going after the the woman with the the jewels and he's trying to distract her he's like use my charm okay and he proceeds to try to trip he trips her and then chases her down the hallway (laughs) trying to trip her repeatedly that sounds like that couldn't possibly work as a gag and and i i laugh until i cry every time i see that even though i know it's coming (laughs) i know it's going to happen it's just so funny it's 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 handled so brilliantly and i think it's uh it's that combination of a director who knows uh how to handle actors who knows what's going to look good in the shot and then how to combine the shots together uh, uh and to keep that pacing up uh and and to know when to stop too, like you know the the that marvelous courtroom scene that we've already talked about in the end, like when when it re- really reaches the crescendo, you have to end it so the the whole thing just collapses and you fade to black, and then you go on to the next thing. It doesn't really have to make sense mm-hmm. how it winds up. You just need to get out of that and go on to the next thing. But uh, yeah, yeah, the, the hotel room as well. Well, the the hotel room scene where I mean things just work up to a completely crazy pitch there, you know, uh, Barbara's hanging from the ledge in a towel. Uh, the guy crashes through the window. The, the curtains are on fire. The, the fire department, you got a whole keystone, keystone cops things going on in the hallways. They're axing doors that have nothing to do with the disaster is striking. And, and Ryan O'Neill ends the scene by just flipping the bottle in the air, fade to black. Again, you've got this just complete, 
you know, uh, carousel <laughs> of mayhem and pratfalls going on. And it's just like, okay, we've, we've run our course. It's time to move on to the next thing. The, the timing of it all is perfect. But you've got to have a vision. You've got to have a sense in your head of where is this thing going to wind down so that we can transition? And I think that that's, that's where your, your study of film has to come in because you, you can set it up, but you've got to find a way to, to move on out. And, and Bogdanovich's close study of, of how the film is put together. Uh, he reminds me of like the Francois Truffaut, somebody else who just inhabited cinema watching hundreds, if not thousands of films over the course of uh, a fairly young lifetime before he you know, got in the game himself and started making his own movies. But by the time he did that, he really understood the mechanics of it all, what connected with audiences and, you know, brilliance ensues from there. And to me, um, and maybe this is just my bias as a lot of the work I do is screenwriting and, and, mm-hmm. and that kind mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But I think too, the, in terms of, knowing when to get out of a scene and, and knowing the timing of these gags and when to say, okay, enough is enough already. Let's, let's move on is um, kind of the brilliance. A lot of bringing Buck Henry in to do that final couple of rewrites, because yeah. knowing that Buck Henry does both the graduate and what's up doc it, to me tells me that maybe some writers just inherently know how to pace a movie better than other people. Cause I think that graduate and what's up doc are perfectly paced um, and even for something as, as kind of reverent and dramatic as The Graduate, I remember the first time I saw it and I thought, OK, it's been like, I don't know, 25 minutes. Let's see how long, far along we are. And I, and I had been an hour and a half in and we had 15 minutes left. Mm. And I think that that was really mm. kind of, you know, the brilliance of the way Buck Henry wrote is that he just knew how to pace every single page so perfectly. And it kind of it's one of those things that when they teach it in film school, the teacher is kind of like, Hey, don't be intimidated by this. You cannot possibly do it yet. Like, like it's okay. You can enjoy these movies. You can enjoy these scripts. It's going to take a long time to hone that skill. And I think Buck Henry just was so unique in that. And I think it was Buck Henry who added the fourth case. He, he said, mm-hmm. it's not complicated enough. We need more complication. And so th- that was just the right number of, uh, of uh, cases is four. So, yeah. Well, I, it means we're, we're surrounding yourself with, with people that are going to improve your own work. And I think to answer your question, David, of how to get this done, I mean, mm-hmm. we could say casting is half of it is a very common axiom to go by because like in the same way that getting Buck Henry is the exact right person, to do that, to lay that exact element into it and to weave it into the film. And, and also for, for him to know what the edit is going to look like in advance to shoot with the edit in mind, but then to get the right cast. And we were waxing uh, a rhapsodic on the cast before, but mm-hmm. yeah. you could watch this film over and over and just kind of track any one of the, you know, maybe 10 key players and follow them through the whole thing as, and just say, they're my favorite character today. <laughs> and you would be justified in saying that. <laughs> and I remember watching it this time and I was like, yeah, th- 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 last time I saw it was Barbara's movie. Today it's Kenneth Mars's movie. And then another time it's Austin Pendleton's movie. And it, every single time you realize that like the, the true benefit to me, I think, and, and why I think this film is funny is this film is actually not stressful for me. I think one issue I have with comedy films is when they th- try to make you stressed out. And especially romantic comedies have a third act crisis and, and it's like as if it has to go like this. 
I compare it um, by one of my warmups for this was watching the owl and the pussycat this week, which mm. was in honor of George uh, Siegel's passing. And it's the, the main film she did, Barbara did right before this. And in some ways it's, it's, it's quite similar. Buck Henry did the adaptation of a play in order to create the film. And it's a romantic comedy where she's really after the, the sort of repressed guy. And you can see some similarities to the way that that film was made. Um, but the, the, where that film might draw me away, I mean, I think it improves it if I start to think of it not as a comedy, if I kind of get out of that mindset, though it makes me laugh quite a lot, is it does create stressful barriers for the characters to go through just for the sake of the movie to exist. And it's often said, oh, why do they have to get into this conflict? And someone might answer, so the movie can happen. It's like, the movie doesn't have to have narrative. <laughs> Narratives don't have to be fulfilled. Plots don't have to go anywhere. Plots can have holes. None of the, these are these are things we assume based on what is told and accepted to us. And I know in, in my one year of film school, which I left because I didn't like being in film school, is I was tired of being told things like, you, you, you have to do the three acts like this. And the fact that like, there's really no issue in the relationship to get resolved. There's no, I can't believe you said this, which would happen in your average two and a half hour Judd Apatow romantic comedy where it just goes on and on because you have to see the characters fight for some reason and improvise terrible dialogue. And instead in this, it's just always funny because you are always safe. You are always comfortable. And as spite of those crescendos, like you don't feel sad inside and you could get worked up like, Oh, I hope they can work out of this. But it's like, you're having fun watching it work out because I think you know right away that it's going to end happily and resolve. It couldn't get to those crescendos and without any sense of darkness, she can't be hanging from the balcony. They can't be in that courtroom, which would normally be dark situations, but they're played in such a way that you know that this is all going to work out. And the trust that you'd have to place in your cast, like Austin Pendleton, who in a lesser movie would be annoyed more often. He's never annoyed. The character is never <laughs> stressful. He's always affable. He doesn't see half of the things we see, which, what is the most annoying thing in a movie? Okay, like also when somebody says something and someone misunderstands it. Oh, wait, let me explain. And then that means 30 more minutes of the movie must happen. This movie has none of that. In fact, it's like, wait a minute, didn't you do the thing? Yes, Kenneth Mars, you lose the grant. Like it's so easy to resolve the plot. <laughs> the plot is just there so the funny yeah, can yeah. happen. To bring it back to how much I love that IMDb uh, like synopsis, it's just like, it's a bunch of bags, mayhem will ensue. And if you're in, if you're in for that, this is great. And that the cast was trusted to be deadpan when they needed to be, and to not get worked up. And even though Madeline Kahn gets worked up, she even she doesn't really understand what's going on and has a happy ending. So um, the fact that no one really knows what's going on, I think, is sort of key. No one's aware as much as we are of what's going on, and even we're confused. But um, the answer to your question, David, is is I think you just need to have the right people, and it needs to be the magic. And I think like Roddy said, we'd all be millionaires if we, if we could just do it. But um, if you had one of these actors be lesser than they are, the movie might not be the movie it is. And he lucked out by knowing who the people he could trust were and knowing that like they can do these specific roles and who can play what roles to what levels and, and, and to what ends, who's completely deadpan. Um, I, th I think Michael Murphy is, is another character. And I love so much mm -hmm. because I don't, fully even understand what he's doing. I think he's on the side of good. I think he's trying to make sure the thing in the case turns out good for like the environment or maybe the government or maybe he's, he's like a K 
counter counter terrorist or something, or he's trying to uh, sub. It doesn't matter. Michael Murphy <laughs> is just having such a nice time running around getting right. high things, and I'm never stressed that there are guns. I'm never stressed that that the stakes go everywhere from like government espionage all the way to like very silly things. I'm not stressed that the lady gets tripped. The old lady gets tripped. In fact, I kind of like it because she seems like a big phony anyhow. So it's, what else can we say? It's just like you, you get all the right people in the right room and they play it all so perfectly. And, um, and that's, that's the genius is, is the producer side. I think of picking the people, the casting director side, having the, the right choices so that, the entire thing happens without you having to try because my favorite experience is working in theater. And the times I've done a video film project is like if, when I have to wrangle the performance out of somebody, when it's a nightmare to get like the room to be the right energy, that's when the project is, is, is tragic. When I could just watch and it happens and we go, all right, I didn't have to do anything. The, the play just <laughs> yeah. happened. And I think you get yeah. a lot of that here. It's the only way you could have made a movie this quickly with the experiences he had had with say targets and last picture show, which are in much smaller projects than this in terms of scope and budget. Yeah. Well, even, even the, uh, the threat to Howard and Eunice's, you know, supposed marriage, fiance and all of that, you, you never feel like there's, there's danger here. Like this, this, nice relationship is getting spoiled by this interloper, this, uh, this Judy character. Uh, what do you think about the chemistry between Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill? Again, this is where the critical reaction was mixed. I buy it. I mean, Ryan O'Neill, he, he may not be Cary Grant, um, but I think he, he fits the part quite well. And, and I find him really likable and very amusing and, you know, appropriately befuddled and at the center of all of this, you know, craziness where he's really just this rock music nerd, not that rock music, but other types of rock music. And, and, uh, you know, all these things just kind of keep happening to him. Yeah. That whole help sign, you know, that he's holding up there, or at least verbalizing that that's the essence of it. Uh, you know, obviously he's this hunky hot guy of the moment, you know, fresh off of love story. And there's that little skewer right at the end there where <laughs> a little wink to the audience. And, and I think, again, it's a, it's a very, well earned and, and and very appropriate takedown there, where he's having fun with his own image. There's a little bit of an inside gag happening there, which uh, fits for the times and, and fits for the lasting reputation that that O'Neill went on, you know, to establish over the course of his career. Uh, but yeah, let's just go back to the, that that central chemistry, Ryan and Barbara. How, how well, that I, I I think that. Um... I noticed why there, I think I didn't understand why their chemistry worked so well the first time I watched it, where it was in the back of my head. I said, this works, but it, it somehow shouldn't, or it, there's something quite <laughs> yeah. maybe missing in my brain about it. But the second time I watched it this week, I realized that it was really in the subtleties that what Will was saying that prevented us from being too stressed out as an audience. I think that's where the chemistry really came in. Cause it, especially in like the, the banquet scene every time Barbara Streisand ratcheted up the stress for him a little bit too much. And we get to that point where in a normal movie, it would just be tragic for us as an audience and just feeling so stressed out about it. Every time it would kind of reach that plateau was when Ryan O'Neill got to kind of soften and, and realize that, Oh, I kind of 
I kind of like what she's doing. And then he would turn to the camera and say, someone get me out of this is a nightmare. But those, I think it's those really subtle moments that he was so good at where as stressed out as he is, he kind of softens and kind of takes a breath for a second and is enamored by her before realizing, wait a second, this is not my fiance. She has to get out of here. And I think for me, that's what made their chemistry. So, and I also think that it's, it's almost impossible to act opposite of Barbara Streisand in her prime and not <laughs> feel some chemistry with her because she is so much, she kind of carries those scenes so well. And I think that it makes for very easy chemistry. I think uh, uh, Ryan O'Neill uh, is often, I think, underrated as an actor for some reason. I mean, I, I guess if we look at his whole career, it, it's had its ups and downs, but he, he did really some marvelous work for Bogdanovich and other films. He's fantastic in Barry Lyndon. Um, but but here I think he maybe even does, dare I say, he does a better job with this character than, say, Cary Grant in Bringing Up Baby because I never really buy Cary Grant as this kind of clueless, befuddled type that he's supposed to be playing. But Ryan O'Neill really hits that. I mean, it's, it's Cary Grant. How could he really be clueless about all the sexual innuendo and yeah. everything that's going on? But, but Ryan yeah. O'Neill, I think, really hits that note. And it's a perfect, he, he's, he's kind of a perfect foil for Streisand's character. And it's that, that opposite uh, thing that, that, that really sparks the screen between the two of them. It's really curious that uh, th- this chemistry did not uh, extend to their other film together, the main event. Uh, sorry to bring up a, a downer <laughs> yeah. there, but it, so, so in, in the hands <laughs> of a great director, they, 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 uh, they're, they're really good together. I think. I think I completely agree, Rodney, that with, uh, with about the comparison to Cary Grant too. And, and you think of their types, if you can use this sort of reductive thing, but that Ryan O'Neill is coming in as a heartthrob, hunky kind of guy in a way Cary Grant isn't. And coming out of Love Story, which I think that that capper is the key of why Ryan O'Neill's performance works so well. And also, the, it's the same reason I think Barry Lyndon works so well. And I've seen negative criticisms for both What's Up Doc and Barry Lyndon with regard to Ryan O'Neill's performance. And I would agree that he's very underrated because I think he's the secret weapon of both of those movies in, in the way he lets so little on, the way he's able to be a bit of a cipher to connect with us, the way he's able to use his his hunkiness to, like, in one case, become Barry Lyndon and become you know, like a, a lord. And in another case, to get Barbara Streisand to just hound after him in that kind of way in a way that we want her to get him. And we hope he eventually like completely understands that this is the person he should be with. And um, it's quite brilliant. It's, it's quite brilliant how quiet and simple the performance can be. And um, the key might just be the fact that he can do a dead expression like no one. Um, th- there are moments in Barry Lyndon where it almost seems like the same character. Like he just turns and says something to somebody and it's no one, like no one is there. And that's, so much more interesting than if he tried to be the befuddled uh, professor where it would, it's Cary Grant wearing, you know, googly glasses. Like, <laughs> look at me, I'm wearing my googly glasses in the movie. And this is, mm. this is not that. I also know they were, they were an item at the time. Yeah, so they, they're right. So they, they have a real life chemistry as well. That's this, uh, that's just the sort of scene where they first sort of consummate their relationship together in that empty room. Uh, 
it is a very hot scene. Like you, you, you can't watch that without thinking this is a sexy movie. Again, the kids could where she comes out of the bath and she's in the towel and she's standing up close to him. Well, there's that, that, there's that, but if this is sort of like the unfinished room scene, uh, with the piano yeah. playing. Oh, it, and, yeah, yeah, that's the other one, right? That's the that that so, was the hot so moment there. But also, even in that banquet scene where they're under the table, and he has that moment of truth, you know, where Eunice comes in and she confronts him and says, "What's going on here?" And there's Judy Barbara giving him the look, and he's like, "I've never seen her before in my life." <laughs> I mean, it's like. <laughs> Brilliant. Just just brings it right there. And, and of course, Eunice is dragged off screaming with the skid marks and everything else. And it's just like, that's where he has that little breakthrough. It's like, yeah, it's about time for my life to take on a new trajectory. And he does that. Also, just that scene where he's um, fiddling with his shirt and he can't get the shirt off. And then he, you know, his bow tie is somehow locking it in. He just rips the shirt off. And there is the, the masculine body in all of its perfection. Well, they give him like a Chippendales outfit at that point. Well, exactly. With with the bow tie still in (laughs) And of course, you know, then then his pajama trousers get torn and and there he is in his boxers, you know, bound around his ankles. I mean, it's just like he he is playing with this, uh, you know, he is an epitome of masculine uh, beauty and, and, and all of that. But he, he's kind of sloughing it off like, hey, it's just me doing my thing. You know, I, I just really love how that's sort of thrown out there to the audience. And uh, and we just have to make, make the best of it. it, it yeah, it, it's it, there's a, just that right note of self-deprecation, of, of cluelessness, and even acknowledging, you know, I was just born into this body. What can I say? It's just mm-hmm. me being Ryan, Ryan O'Neill, you know? <laughs> all right. So, so. So we've got the chemistry thing. Where else do we want to go with it? Uh, let's talk about Madeline Kahn. She was introduced. This was her debut feature. Uh, and uh, she went on to have a pretty spectacular career. Uh, how do you think she did as Eunice? Well, I mean, I think Madeline Kahn is... Um, I have a hard time never saying anything but she's perfect in this. I think even in yeah. if there's something that I, I think Madeline Kahn didn't have the best direction for, didn't have the best writing for, I would still watch it and say, oh, it's it's perfect. It's Madeline Kahn. Yeah. I, I, um, I, I have a hard time um, watching anything Madeline Kahn and not, not immediately thinking, oh, she was A, gone too soon, and B, perfect for this role. She always seems to yeah. just hit those marks so well. And for this to be kind of her her debut I think is really remarkable to have a debut of, of this caliber with this cast and still be kind of a shining star in a cast of shining Mm -hmm. stars is, is um, I think a real Testament to, to her, to her ability to just dominate any scene without, you know, while letting everyone else in the, in the scene have their chance to, to, to shine. And you get the feeling that as, as, as somebody already said, about many of the the actors in this film, you get the feeling that she she has no idea she's in a comedy, right? She has, she really seems to have no idea that right. that her performance is supposed to be funny, and I think on the uh, on the commentary track of the Warner uh, release, Bogdanovich even says that he he thought she had no idea that she was being funny. Uh, it's just she's just sort of playing this very frustrated uh, uh, fiance who is always Howard. Just that sort of, and that it, but it just works so well with that the wig and the costumes and that performance. It, it's just gold. I wonder if she even knew how funny she was being in this or any of her other films. 
I, I get the sense that she understood, but she she kept it all internalized. That that kind of deadpan, neurotic, uptight, a little bit over controlling. But she's doing what she thinks she needs to do to keep her errant, absent-minded, uh, you know, professor fiance in line. I mean, she's she's kind of like his manager in a sense. More and and you know, she says, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, she's not looking for romance. There's more important things for the romance. Romance fades over time. And he says, yeah, what, what replaces it? Senility. <laughs> that's that's uh, his line. And she's like, trust, you know? And so she, she, yeah, she's looking for trust, which in her mind is more like control, predictability, uh, prosperity, you know, and not that she's a gold digger or anything, but she just wants, she, she sees this potential in her fiance and she's really trying to manage him to get to that point of stability and, get the grant and, and all of that. But that's, you know, it's not really going to be what's what's good for, for Howard. And it's not really going to be what she's looking for either, you know, and she, she finds, she finds her match towards the end. So it's, yeah, it's, to me, it just feels like Madeline kind of always has a sense of what is she being called on to do? She does it like, like Eric said, she, she hits her marks perfectly. Uh, just the efficiency and the brilliance of, how she gets that character across, whatever she's called on to do. I've always had that same impression of just somebody who really gets it and, um, you know, cast her, give her the script, trust her. She will deliver, you know? Yeah. She's kind of a winder up and watch her go kind of actress. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and bringing new dimensions. No, I was saying is that she just going off that she is kind of a, if you just give her the material and you give her, even a starting point, she will just kind of run with it and create these really amazing scenes. I mean, she also gets, you know, from Bogdanovich and from the costume designers, she gets these great sight gags just in how put together Mm -hmm. she is and how put together she wants everyone else to be that when she puts on that kind of crazy wig that matches her hair color anyway, to, to make sure that she's always perfectly kind of, you know, manicured, I, I, it gets me every time. And it, it, I somehow forget about the wig every time when she comes out of the airport at the beginning, I always forget that that is a wig. And that as the movie goes on, no matter what goes on, that's crazy. She still is able to kind of reach for that wig and put it back on and still look perfect. Even as the, you know, the building is literally burning down around her. (laughs) Yes. She had no understanding of propriety. Go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> she, she's ma- she's managing to to be like you say this unlikable the other woman character in a romantic comedy like this is often a rock in the shoe of the viewer who gets in the way of having fun and i i do feel that way like a film like um uh my favorite wife um which i it feels that way to me it's like i just want irene dunn to be on screen every time the lady who's wrong comes on screen I have a bad time because it's like it's a bunch of it's just, I don't want to be stressed. I just want to be I don't want to be stressed. There's a pandemic going on. <laughs> and and I and I think and another comparison point you're making, uh, David, about the way that some of those scenes like the banquet plays in the way that um, you can compare it to like um, an everything goes wrong. Ben Stiller comedy, which I also don't care for because they're just stressful. They're stressful and they're mm-hmm. stupid people getting into stressful situations and being hapless, but having no personality about it. And whereas like the reactions you can get from those characters like Ryan O'Neill and like Madeline Kahn in these scenes are always, always such that they're, they're couched in comfort for me somehow. And, and that I, you know, I think that as a 
viewer seeing it in hindsight, you instantly have love for Madeline Kong. And I would wonder if as a first time viewer seeing this when it came out, that might feel slightly different, but I imagine you'd be won over. But at least from first sight in the first scene when she shows up, you know who she is without her even having to say anything because you know Madeline Kahn. And then once she starts to speak, you know who she is because she said something and is, is Madeline Kahn. So um, I, it's, it's an incredible first performance and um, in many ways set a standard for what she would do. I mean, you, you can imagine her saying flames on the side of my face in this movie. <laughs> so it's not like it's, it's, too, it's too strange to see where people took her career in the future. And yes, she's gone too soon and she's perfect in this role as a perfect summation of just how anytime she's in something, it's like you just have that feeling of like, you're perfect in everything. I wish there was more. I wish we had more. I wish we had given you more to do um, and uh, starred in a hundred movies, but here, here. Let's let's move on to some of the the physical slapstick, the pratfalls, the the you know the practical comedy, just the wildness of it all, because that's another big piece of it. Yeah, you know, you've got, you know, you got a you got a food fight. You know, we've already talked about a few of those other scenes, uh, the car chases. But let's just you know, again, what does it take? I mean, there's there's sort of a Three Stooges slapstick elements going on here as well as just Ryan O'Neill taking some pretty big. Falls. I mean, he's and it's that's him. He's he's out there tumbling around, <laughs> taking some pretty hard dives a few times. Um, you know, again, what does it take to make that kind of humor work? Because for a lot of people, it's just like, oh, this is just so stupid. But but uh, I I was just laughing and laughing again. I probably watched it five or six times by now, and it, it seems to just roll up and enhance in its you know comedic value as we go. But let's talk about the physical elements. Uh, who wants to take that one? I think it helps to push this stuff to the limit, right? If you have somebody, a a director who's willing to go the limit, uh, as Bogdanovich does here. And it reminds me a little bit of the physical comedy in The Lady Eve, when, you know, Mm. you've never seen anybody fall down quite so many times as Henry Fonda falls down in that movie. And so um, here, uh, he's just willing to do it. And yes, okay, we're going to have a pie fight. Okay, but if you're going to do it, you have to do it. Yeah. So I, I think it's just it, it's gutsy to to be willing to go that route. But if you're committed to it, I mean, if you have a character that you're you know you're 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 sympathetic with, you like the character, and, and you there, there's no danger. As Will was saying, we're not stressed out. We don't think anything bad is really going to happen. Then it is kind of fun to see them, uh, you know. Uh, falling down and, and getting into all, mm-hmm. all this sort of hijinks. Yeah, I think allowing them to, I think it takes two things. It takes kind of, you know, a real kind of choreographer's eye in, you know, because Pratt Falls and, and stage combat and all of that is is as much about getting, really knowing your choreography than anything else, of making sure that it's safe for the actors and also safe for the audience watching it in terms of, okay, I know they're not really going to get hurt and this is just fun and it's allowed to be pushing the limits and look as cartoonish as possible. And that ties in with the other thing I was going to say, which is that, you know, we immediately understand this to essentially be Looney Tunes just from the title. And we know that it's Looney Tunes, you know, from the weird um, contrast of 
oh, what a, what a nice opening title sequence from Barbara Streisand singing. And the first thing we see is like an Acme top secret kind of government file. So we immediately right. know that this is going to be a movie of contrast. And, and so allowing the characters and the actors to be as Looney Tunes characters, cartoonish as possible, it it lets them kind of, you know, really embrace the the choreography of the pratfall and, and getting a pie in the face and picking up that weird wire sculpture that, that Barbara Streisand slaps the other guy in the head with and almost right. pokes his eye out. Right. You know, we right. get just close enough to it, it looking like this could really hurt someone and knowing that it's going to be fine in the end. Well, and using these kind of, you know, modern objects of art, you know, these sculptures. I mean, there's that one scene where there's kind of some kind of metallic loops and it's kind of this weird abstract thing and it just gets destroyed with somebody's body flying <laughs> and stuff like that. And and even, you know, the the the, the big pane of glass. I mean, that that's just another brilliant scene. I mean, just again, break that down where they're moving it back and forth across the street and there's all those near misses. And what is it that finally gets it done? It's not a car crashing. It's a, it's the guy up on the tight wire there who swings down holding the banner after the ladder's knocked out from it. I mean, it's just, you know, sketching all of this stuff out. I don't know if, if that was part of the original screenplay, if they have a specialty department that, that thinks up these gags, but it was really, again, you, you just map it all out. It's just like, fantastic out on the streets of San Francisco where I used to live, you know, just was kind of a side note, but I've been on those streets. I, I know what those hills are like and a lot of tourists and people have been out there as well, but it's just, it's just amazing to see these locations, you know, brought to life and taken advantage of in that way when, when the car chase, the Chinatown sequence, the, the big dragon, I mean, just, it's just, quite amazing just to, to behold this this whole spectacle over the course of I don't know seven or eight minutes it's a pretty pretty lengthy sequence and again lots of shooting lots of planning lots of choreography but the execution is just quite brilliant and, and quite breathtaking and my understanding is that um I, I think there was an interview with Bogdanovich where he basically said that Buck Henry kind of left him high and dry in the script for the a lot of the physical comedy where he just kind of wrote you know this care like this scene will happen now and then the car chase happens and and and, and he left a <laughs> okay. lot of it up to Bogdanovich <laughs> to basically be like all right I guess I'll figure that out then and make it funny and and make it yeah. work for these characters. Well, there's there's whole movies that are based on you know car hijinks. You know, Gone mm -hmm. in sixty seconds, the whole Fast and Furious franchise, and more modern times. We already referenced Bullet and some of the other you know, Steve McQueen classics, where the whole thing is just about barreling your cars around and smashing them into each other. Uh, you know, so so there are people you know films that go much further down that road, but but this one here sort of has those sequences, and then it does a bunch of other things. But but when it does that car chase bit. I don't know. To me, it's, it's really enthralling. And I just, again, marvel that they were able to, to get it right. Uh, and I don't know, I don't know who came up with it. I don't know if that's Bogdanovich or other people that he had sort of farmed up that, that uh, whole responsibility to. Uh, I, I just love that it's in here and that it just sort of brings, because everything else just, it just continues to ramp up. You, you've got all the interpersonal conflicts. You've got the, you know, the, the property damage in the hotel. You've got all, all the shenanigans mixing up those bags and who has which bag now and, and how they all wind up. You know, who's got the clothes, who's got the jewels, who's got the rocks, who's got the documents. You know, it's, it's, it's just this big old roundabout. And then the way it all sort of just, comes to this explosion of, of action and, and and smashed up cars. I mean, what was that one van that gets kind of turned over on its side? And 
falls to pieces. It's just it's just an amazing spectacle of, of all this stuff, you know, ramping up, crashing into each other, finally falling apart, and then we of course end up in the bay <laughs> with the with the bug floating on top when everybody else is just launching into the waters and <laughs> swimming for their lives. Crazy. Think everything that links what you say, David, it, it addresses the fact that the, the comedy, the physical comedy makes such excellent use of environments, not yeah. just props, but just the environments like you, you can, you, right now we can all visualize that hallway and there must be a hundred gags in that one hallway and then the separate rooms. Oh yeah. Everything in that. The door slamming um, and in and out. And the fact that a lot, a lot of what makes this more than right. just people hitting each other is the fact that there's like there's logic to things sometimes, or the mm-hmm. deliberateness in which the the glass is set up, that you can lay pieces in a row for an audience, and they can kind of see where you're going sometimes, and you can make them happen, or you can blindside them, which is like the garbage cans. Which just proved to just wreak chaos on some other guy's life for a brief moment, which we don't even get to notice. But they just knock a bunch of cans to the side, and then you see them rolling down the street later. <laughs> and you kind of, it's, it's, it's not edited in a way where you really see syntactically that that's what's happening. So you might not even catch, oh, it might just be more chaos now. And then, you know, people that get, um, you know, the, the, their restaurant uh, smashed into. Yeah. And, those, those the guy working his trowel over the cement on that little driveway. <laughs> and, and these, these are things. These, these are things we're, yeah. we're kind of used to seeing comedies interact with now. But I think if we mentioned before that we're not going to have a car chase scene in the '30s, we're going to have uh, projection, and we're going to have the scenes generally not be filmed in real cars, but the real actors. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, you can think about a movie like even um, just slightly less than a decade before a Mad 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 World, mm-hmm. where the kind of physical comedy that involves environments and vehicles isn't nearly as sharp and crisp and not as likable because everybody in the movie is an asshole. So it's like you want to spend the whole movie going, I don't care. Crash the plane. I don't care. So this is like, like it, it, like it feels like, like a thousand years of innovation between the swinging on the fire truck in mad, mad world and the way they're interacting with the city here. Um, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. And it's even the way you button a scene like a rock and roll of the dog licking Spencer Tracy's face, which is the one of the least convincing outs in a comedy <laughs> scene ever made. I don't like this film. I will point out, uh, but I've seen it many times and I will see it many more times. But um, despite all the people I like in it, um, it's to me like the, it's to me the, the epitome of like why a comedy like this can feel dry sometimes because it's so slow and it's nine hours long. Mm-hmm. and where this has no air and you're just constantly with it and you're constantly with joy and i i wish that that can happen more and more often and, and really comedies i bet i like probably have a lot of this dna in it in, in the interim but i think it we needed to see location shooting and i think that mm-hmm. this is this is the turning point in in the late 60s early 70s where we're allowed to film in cities now so let's start getting comfortable with it. I mean, it, it's one of the main keys, I think, of this uh, new wave era and then the Hollywood Renaissance that we're going to have um, cities be characters. And we've you've had things like that, David. So how many films have you had now on the podcast that like have New York as a location where you're oh, seeing sure. cities as they are in a way that you wouldn't have 10, 15, 20 years earlier? And, um, and that's so crucial. I mean, we have exceptions. We have our night in the city in London and things like that where like you... They, it's, oh my God, I can't believe we, we broke out of the set. 
And um, and this film feels like that. It feels like we're in the set so long. And finally, when like we break out of it, and we're back in the city, which which, which we were teased with at the beginning, with right. one of the best stunts in the movie, which is Barbara walking across the street, <laughs> um, which is remarkable that it's the real stunt. And it's just walking you, across have, the street. Have but. you analyzed that? I, I, was, I was watching that really because... You can see there's this motorcycle that zooms behind her, but then it's like it's in a collision. But I I could not see that other like moped or or I don't know I don't know what it was because well, there's like it, a, a lot of that's got probably going to be uh, the lens can make things. I mean that's the, the always like a telephoto lens is going to trick our eye into thinking like someone's about to get yeah. hit by a car or to think that, there, that there's distances that are not quite the same. Um, but it, it looked like there were like... two 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 vehicles that collided, like two-wheeled, you know. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, because then right after that, there right. is a collision that's like mm. right after actual Barbara Streisand passes right. by. She like passes right that's behind the real deal, yeah. There's a crash. It's like, where did that other vehicle come well, from? Well, I think, yeah. I think that, that that's part and parcel with not getting permits in San Francisco. It's like not <laughs> right. worrying about the fact that insurance wasn't going to cover Barbara doing that stunt. Mm. And because um, really, there's no reason. Like at any point, any of those stunt drivers could have swerved a little bit, and Barbara would be right. wrong. Right. And the fact that they trust some, and I get, I get anxious well, watching any scene like that. But it's, it's so, it's, it's so, it awe-inspiring. As like to me, that is as exciting as the house in Buster Keaton. Like it's, it's like I can't believe they did it. I can't believe. Well, they, and they, there was another one. Shot. And where she walked right in front of a white car, which slams on the brakes, and then the car right behind it smashes into that, and, and that's a pretty full-on rear ender. I mean, there's broken glass all over. That's not like <laughs> no CGI or anything, but I mean, it's it's very much hair's breadth. And I don't I don't know if they had a stunt double for Barbara, but it was like yeah, some pretty scary looking stuff there. I, it was really really close, you know. That, uh, the, that's the, the, that's the movie magic. That's like yeah, that's what we. Yeah. That's the reason to go to most of the car movies, is right, is mm-hmm. to see why things like Fast and Furious and Mission Impossible are still getting raved about now and then is because of the actual stunts. And they'll go, what kooky stunt can we put in this time? Right. And really, they, they don't have to be that outrageous. I'm just as excited seeing Barbara Streisand walk across the street. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's a sort of um, it's a sort of beauty of being able to choreograph that sort of thing and have the, the excellent stunt performers and stunt drivers who are masters at what they're doing. I mean, it's the, this, the, you, when you watch the end credits of this, you just have to marvel at how long the stunt and car crew section yeah. of the credits is. Oh, you know? yeah. And that like, was, uh... that's, that's definitely where the, the budget would go and not into uh, permits. So like, let's just get <laughs> the right people, film it, and then go, which is clearly somebody who uh, knew Roger Corman talking. Like, this is somebody who yeah. used to yeah. film in Target. <laughs> yeah. like, he's, like, I, I need to get this done cheaply. So... Um, well, save Warner Brothers some money to put it somewhere else. And story structure wise, you know, I, I like you said how we spend the majority of the first kind of two thirds of the movie in the hotel, and we have that teaser at the beginning that San Francisco could be a character, but we have this, you know, in terms of the script, it's you know the, the bulk of the first and second act are just how can we terrorize and destroy this hotel so completely that there's a whole room on fire? <laughs> so by act yeah. three, um, it's kind of Bogdanovich saying, okay, I've destroyed the hotel. Now I'm going to terrorize every single solitary person who has ever come to San Francisco, whoever lives in San Francisco, everyone's going to be terrorized by, by the, this crazy cast. And to me, I, I think that um, I've always kind of maintained that I think the greatest car chase in film history is the blues brothers because i mm. see the blues brothers as taking <laughs> bullet and taking all the classic you know car chases that came before it and then just 
kicking its ass. And I've always kind of felt that way. And to me, this is a very similar thing of just terrorizing a city, letting piles and piles of cars just line up on top of each other. Just the most ridiculous outlandish things are happening in it. And, and you kind of know in the end, eh, maybe they deserved it. Like maybe the city's like it's the sense that you get from this. Like, well, I think it's fine. I think, you know, everyone's, you know, yeah, you destroyed a couple of cars. You almost burned down a building, but it, you, you gave us a good show. And, and I think that that really um, goes back to kind of where Bogdanovich really shines of, of just making sure that, you know, we are in it to win it the whole time. And if you're about to see um, a stunt where a guy flies out the back of a convertible while the car is still going one way off the pier, you I, every time I see that, I think, is he okay? <laughs> like, is he okay? Because <laughs> I, it's so outlandish. And every time you know, we get right up to the edge of how much further can we take it and how many more people could we possibly terrorize in just 90 minutes? Yeah, no. And there, it, it there's really one is. guy talk about your 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 cartoonish violence, right? The, there's a guy <laughs> standing up, I think, in a in a car, and he it, 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 it rips through this awning, this extended yeah. awning. Yeah, and his head is ripping. <laughs> this guy would be dead. So the, this is this is uh, this is very much cartoon violence. But uh, something else I wanted to get back to about the the comedy of the film, so much of it being physical comedy, as we've been discussing. But we talked earlier about the brilliant writing and the dialogue and everything. But a, a lot of this film really plays like a silent movie. I mean, a lot of the, a mm-hmm. lot of all those crossings of that hallway. That's really essentially all silent. The whole gag with the the plate of glass is is right out of uh, Buster Keaton or something. I mean, that, sure. and that that right. that that end gag there. And we know that Bogdanovich really admires the silent comedians. Uh, uh, you guys have probably seen his documentary on Keaton, and um, in a way that the, the pane of glass reminds me a little bit of Jacques Tati. Also, it's it sort of yeah. plants it there. You know something is going to happen with that pane of glass. It won't happen the way you think it's going to happen, uh, but it will eventually pay off. And that that reminds me of, of some of the gags in Playtime. And of course, Tati I think was uh, influenced a lot by Keaton as well. Yeah, and Bogdanovich the, knew that as well. Go ahead. Yeah. One of the tropes that I that I notice, especially this time, is um, you know, Bogdanovich is really kind of he's kind of almost at one point, especially during the car chase sequence, just kind of checking off the box of every Looney Tunes trope he could think of to throw these characters into. And I think what what I'm what I love is when they drive the Chinese dragon right into the old costume shop because in Looney Tunes, Bugs and and Co. would have been in, in a costume and they would have gotten away with talking to, to the characters and they wouldn't know it. And I love that we get the satisfaction of seeing Ryan O'Neill and Barbara Streisand in a crazy costume and immediately the next shot they are seen, they're found. They they never get away with like, oh, we're a different character. They don't get they don't get to get to that point of Looney Tunes, but we at least have the satisfaction of they're in a new costume and they're immediately discovered and they gotta keep running. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a, it's another layer of chemistry and and whimsy that it makes them a very endearing couple, you know, because they're, they're just on this zany adventure together. All right. So are there any points? I mean, I, you know, we're probably about at the 
length of the film itself, maybe even a little bit longer in our <laughs> terms of our conversation. Are, are there any key points that people want to bring out? I mean, it's it's a fun film. It's it's a blast. Uh, what else have we have we not touched on yet? Well, I think that we've that we've done it a disservice to not talk for ninety minutes at length about the courtroom scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let's um, go back there because that was kind of the culmination. Sure, sure. Um, I I think perhaps only because I I know that I can see the text coming into my phone in the future when my mom listens and she goes, "How do you talk about the whole movie without talking about the courtroom scene?" <laughs> um, yeah. Because it, to me, it is. I find it to be the most requotable, which for for me in comedy movies, I think that being able to quote a scene <laughs> yeah. is really important for some reason. And I find that to be the most quotable scene because you have this truly ornery old judge who, like he says, could die any second. <laughs> and 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 can <laughs> come right his, there on the corner. Yeah, and 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 tell and 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 basically saying, okay, tell me the movie right now, and you've got 10 seconds and I will give you a reward or I'm going to set up a torture chamber. And I think that that is where, you know, it's almost like we get to see this full breadth of Bogdanovich and Buck Henry's kind of comedy um, sensibilities is you get all the Looney Tunes stuff and then you get kind of old school classic, um, you know, like Cary Grant, fast pace, you know, here's a clear antagonist in the scene and here is a clear protagonist and everyone is trying to talk at once. And I think that, you know, for for trying to wrap up what's happened in the movie and almost remind the audience, hey, do you realize how crazy this movie was that you just watched? Yeah, Let me yeah. try and explain it to you and then also have the, the bench fall apart at the end. And I think that the courtroom <laughs> scene is so, to me, so endearing that it's one of those things where I, I want to just save just that scene on my phone and just rewatch it constantly. I don't care about the rest of the movie <laughs> once we get to that scene because yeah. I think it's such a brilliant kind of banter, you know, Michigas scene. This courtroom may not look like much, but it's all I've got. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and it brings all those random elements. You've got the, you know, you've got the government espionage intrigue. You've got the the criminal folks and and another great Madeline Kahn scene where she sort of is misguided and stumbles into the, in the, in the, the crime layer where they're working over somebody with, with uh, Howard's igneous rocks, you know, and she's find herself at the wrong woman, wrong time and all of that. But you know, all those things come together, you know, the, the old lady and her missing jewels, you know, the, the whole, you know, artsy scene and, and all of that. Yeah, it is. It, it's just this great concentration of, of all that energy that sort of just comes to a full, you know, boil, and then even the reveal of, of Judy as the judge's daughter. It's, it's a little bit gratuitous, and it's a bit of a non-sequitur, but a perfect little, it's another, it's one of those graceful exits. We've had our moment, everything's fallen to pieces. Oh, and by the way, she's the judge's daughter. <laughs> well, and with black. the old... And then we go, yeah, right. With the old lady who kind of ties everything together and, you know, is saying like, hey, I took care of the bill in the airport at the end. I think that for as small a role as she is, I don't know why, but every time I watch this movie, I think that's the only casting I I disagreed with slightly in terms of, I, for some reason, maybe it's because this is the same era as Harold and Maude and Rosemary's Baby, but I always want it to be Ruth Gordon. <laughs> and I wonder yeah, yeah. if I, I wonder if I only think that because in the back of my mind, I wanted to see Ruth Gordon in those silver go-go boots to see what would happen. <laughs> 
I, I always, I always just want that kind of, you know, crazy East Coast, like, you know, Rosemary's baby witchy accent to come out when she's telling him, okay, here's $50 between you and the cab fare. Have a nice life. Yeah, I think she was pretty busy with Harold Maud at the time that this yeah. was being made. So it probably just couldn't be two places at the same time. <laughs> That's a, that is a great fantasy casting there. But who we get is Mabel Albertson, who was known at the okay. time as the the uh, the mother, Darren's mother on Bewitched. Right. I, I think um, that's oh, the yeah. that that's the only other thing I've really ever seen her in. But she she was she would have been instantly recognizable at that time. I think because of that TV. Sure. Role. Um, I wanted to say that, uh, you know, Bogdanovich's other comedies are well worth checking out. I mean, Paper Moon certainly mm-hmm. has a lot of comedy and mixed oh, in sure. with some seriousness, but even Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon gets a bad rap, but I think that's a really wonderful film, especially if you can see the black and white version that Bogdanovich put out, I guess, about 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Uh, it works very well. And, uh, I, I love his film adaptation of Noises Off. So he, he really does have a, a good sense of, of comedy, even though none of those films has been as successful as What's Up, Doc. What is saying noises off as like a, another thing to be inspired by for him, like taking up such a perfect, funny piece of theater and trying to do it as a movie is as foolhardy an endeavor as trying to put on a production of noises off in the first place <laughs> and get it all right. But this is somebody who's willing to, t- to like to take that chance and go out on a limb and, and, and I, we watched Noises Off well before I ever saw uh, it on stage, and I always thought that was an incredibly funny film. Uh, and it, it achieves the mania of theater, even though it's a film, and, and you still get that energy that I can't believe this is all happening at once. How accessible are some of Bogdanovich's later films? I mean, right now, The Last Picture Show is the only officially released Criterion title I almost think that you know, Bogdanovich has a lot more appearances in the supplements of Criterion Collection uh, home media than he does actual films. And I don't see, like I've already said, I don't see either Paper Moon or What's Up Doc coming to the collection just because, you know, Warner's has them and, and those are probably pretty good money makers for them. But his later films seem to be in a bit of obscurity. I don't know. Do any of you know about, you know, how how retrievable are they? Are, are they things that could be found without a whole lot of searching? Are they in print? Cause they, you're right. They, they don't seem to get a lot of talk or circulation unless you really want to make the study of Bogdanovich as a director and go out and find them. But I'm just not really sure where to find there, some of those. There are num- I mean, looking on, on letterbox, there are a number, I mean, you can currently, as of this recording mm-hmm. stream St. Jack and Tom Petty documentary, on okay. Prime, but that's that's still the seventies and then an aughts documentary, um, and then you can pay for Cats Meow to Sir Love with Love to the thing called Love, um, and she's funny that way. These are things you could at least rent to stream. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you're bringing up right now a particular cause celeb for me at this point, which is that as media conglomerates start to own libraries like this, finding films will be harder and harder. Mm-hmm. And physical media allows people to, to actually have them and keep them potentially in forever until the discs rot, which is not very likely with the Blu-ray, at least in our lifetimes. And um, like I don't see um, a Warner Media, which is now the big company that owns all these things, like really paying attention to the little pieces. And it's going to be hard for some of these films to be found. And um, so a lot of times we, we wait for that rescue. And then mm-hmm. that rescue is only as long as that Blu-ray label stays in business. 
and or has the rights to it, which may lapse, uh, as we've seen with the Paramount titles recently on Criterion. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, it's like Warner's in question is another important thing because Warner Media fired their entire Warner archive collection staff. Yeah. So the fact that that What's Up Doc disc is even in print now, it just recently got back in print, um, that may not last forever. So people listening here might want to pick up that disc before there are no discs to be had. And certainly, I don't think we'll ever see Warner Media, which is too busy um, owning everything because it's AT&T <laughs> and it's HBO, right. it's TCM, it's all of these things. They're, they're not going to save these supplements for us. And they're certainly not going to put through their... I mean, if you watch TCM right now, you'll notice that they have advertisements like HBO Max, the home of TCM on streaming, as mm. if they don't have their own streaming platform to begin with, where it has all the things they show on TV, which are generally very obscure. And the HBO Max contingent is stuff that is in the Warner Library already on the HBO side and occasional big hit classic titles. But what that's going to mean is there are still thousands and thousands of, of MGM Warner uh, RKO movies that are just sitting in a basement and the original prints will rot and they'll mm. they have no they see that the, they look it's one percent uh it's of, of their entire pay goes to this one part but they make 0.09 percent back so let's you know let's get rid of it and realize <laughs> yeah. that it's not worth keeping mm. and uh, I, I hope that in 30 years time we could even see any of these movies at all so um so if you happen to have a copy of any of these later peter bogdanovich movies save them and then after there's no one who can save us, pirate them and give them away to, in order to sort of show the media conglomerates <laughs> who's boss. Because it gets to a point when like when in 30 years, if we can't get what's up, Doc, the pirates are the heroes mm. because there will be no other way for people to share in our joy that we're having today. When they listen to this podcast in 30 years, David, I hope they have a way to see it. Well, and I I hope hope they have a way to listen to it too. Yeah. (laughs) I hope the pirates also, while they're pirating it, um, they take their what's up doc DVD and they go on Photoshop and they make their dream criterion cover for what's up doc. And then swap that out in the (laughs) Blu-ray. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, what's up doc is probably one of the, you know, more prominence. I think some of the things that Rodney was referring me to was like, yeah, I'd like to go track those down even just just for a watch, even if it's not ownership, but it, it feels like yeah, they're you're going to have to do some real digging to 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 pull them back up into current you know. You have to luck out. Most of yeah. it you have to luck out on TCM. Like Nickelodeon's been on TCM once in the last mm-hmm. year, but that might be once every three years they play it. Mm-hmm. Right. And otherwise, it's again it's sitting in a box and they don't have it anywhere where no one's paying attention to it besides TCM. And yeah. within eight, nine years, they will fire all the hosts and have commercials on that channel. I mean, there's no yeah. way that they're going to keep that the way it is for mm. long. So mm. um, it's it's a real shame. So I, I I just worry about what we're saying. So hope again, I, the, pod, the podcast will survive, David, because <laughs> Apple won't go away. <laughs> okay. Apple well, will still uh, exist. And I will continue to make my digital files free for download and, and spread them around. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's kind of sad to leave leave this comedy episode on sort of a I, I got I got okay. I have a fun I have a fun trivia fact. Okay, set us laughing as we go. <laughs> okay. This is this is very good trivia. There's a connection from this film to one of our previous episodes on a Criterion disc title. Okay. Which is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah, well, you know that that film it, crossed my mind. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> there is an actor 
named Stan Ross, who okay. appears at the table of musicologists. <laughs> okay. He's got long, scraggly hair. He plays a character in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls called the just Disciple. And he's got his hair forward like this. No one can see because it's an audio audio yeah. podcast. But he's got his hair forward like this. Okay. And he dances with the old lady to the strawberry alarm clock. Oh, that okay. guy, yeah. he's just if you just Google this guy in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Stan Ross, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, you'll be like, that's the guy. And he's at the musicologist's table as one of the guys going, oh, wow, Barbara's so great. <laughs> yeah. So, and Randy uh, Quaid is in that group, right? Randy well, Quaid's that's there. That's true. And, and, Randy Quaid's there. And John Biner as well, another kind of a TV star of that era. So those are a couple of familiar it's, faces. It's Stan. So, so Stan Ross. Okay, that's cool. Stan, that's a nice I, this, 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 was, this was me going, oh, yeah, that's the guy from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and then checking to make sure that I wasn't wrong, and then saying, I got to tell David. Well, thank you for so, doing your homework on it. That, that's that. a pretty cool one. Okay, guys. Well, I think that we are at wrap-up time. So, um, William, we'll just go around in the same order that we introduced. Anything you want to do as far as updates, links, uh, publicity, and anything that you got going on that uh, might be of interest to, to listeners? Uh, the, 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 that's all, folks. <laughs> okay. I got nothing. I got nothing. Right. I hope everybody well, stay safe. Well, yes, I, I well I let's continue. I, I, I will I will yeah. I will plug our uh, our Hofstra film website hofstrafilm.com you can find out okay. about me and my colleagues at Hofstra. Yeah, so yeah tell us a little bit what's on the site what are you going to find when you click there? Uh, it's a, it's a nice overview of our our film program you'll see some links yeah. to student work but also profiles of uh, the faculty and uh, uh, links back to the school itself. So excellent. Cool I, will, I will look into it. Yeah. And I definitely am really happy to have you on Rodney. Um, yeah. Again, the, the, you know, the stories of your contributions to those criterion discs are really cool. I welcome you back. Take a look at that spreadsheet. We'll, we'll be sure to get you on, on future episodes and, and continue to glean more from your knowledge. Oh, thank you. I'd love to teaching film. Absolutely. And Eric, how about you? What do you want to say as far as uh, listeners way, ways to you know, catch up with you, find out what you're doing? So you've done some screenwriting, filmmaking, uh, any, any links that you want to steer us for? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I will plug certainly my, uh, my production company in Chicago. It's Action Lines and our website is actionlinesmedia.com. Um, mm-hmm. But it's me and I started it with two other um, dancers at the Joffrey Ballet. So it kind of began as, as dance films just to do during the pandemic. And it's, we got our first commission that's running now through uh, the end of April. Um, if you're listening to this in the future, the end of April, 2021 um, yeah. in Chicago at um, a, a thing called the 150 media stream wall, which is this huge, like, you know, 300 foot wide uh, media wall that, that we were commissioned to do this big ballet video of, um, it, that kind of projects onto it um, 24-7. Uh, it's free to the public. You can go see it if you're in Chicago, if you want to visit Chicago and see it. Um, and then I'm on Letterboxd. I try and make my reviews kind of fun and silly and and humorous. And I'm on Twitter, and they're both uh, not Eric Grant, N-O-T-E-R-I-C-G-R-A-N-T. And that's Great. Uh, and we'll... <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Well, we'll have links in the show notes, so scroll to the bottom and find the names and and, uh, catch up with our guests here. Uh, I will definitely look forward to checking out more of your stuff and getting to know you better as well. Uh, For my own plugs, I just want to promote an episode that I was just a guest on on the 
podcast called Purple Noon. It's a couple of young women down in Florida uh, who are cousins as well as good friends. I did a podcast with them last year talking about the, um, uh, the feminist films that were on the Criterion channel. I think that a lot of that bundle is still up. And I've just really kind of made good friends with them. But we did an episode on uh, Rocco and his brothers and the 400 Blows couple of pretty pivotal uh, films, uh, European art house films from the late 50s, early 60s. And I really had a great time having that conversation with them. It was episode 51 of their podcast. It's called Purple Noon. Just published this morning. So that's out there. Uh, follow me on TikTok. That's actually where my most uh, kind of daily social media updates are, are happening these days. I still do a little bit on Facebook, a little bit on other platforms too, but I'm really kind of digging TikTok these days. It's a lot of energy, a lot of fun. And I uh, just really, again, love that community and, and uh, enjoying getting to know me, new people over there. Our next episode of this podcast is going to be a couple of less blank films, a well-spent life and spend it all. So I'm looking forward to getting down into that page and funk and, uh, blues scene down the less blank way. So that's coming up on episode 96. Again, Rodney, Eric, William, been a blast having you on. Really great to have this conversation. And uh, definitely check out What's Up Doc. It's uh, definitely a very rewatchable, always entertaining film. I think the more you get into it, the more you'll love it. So thank you for listening, and everybody we will be talking to you real soon. That's all, folks. <laughs> What's up, Doc? Hey, we got something, Doc. Let's do it again. What's up, Doc? You were a smash hit. Offers poured in from all over the country. And then came Hollywood and Warner Brothers, where I was launched on my film career. Okay, roll them. Me, what's up, Doc? What's cooking? What's up, Doc? Oh, you're looking for bugs, bunny bunting. Duck is gonna hunting just to get a rabbit skin, but now the rabbit's gonna get. What's up, Doc? What's cooking? Hey, look out! Stop! You're gonna hurt someone with that old shotgun. Hey, what's up, Doc? We really mean it. What's up, Doc? And today I'm starting my first picture, a part written especially for me. Whoops! I'm due on the set. Goodbye. We hope you like our show. We know you're rooting for us, but now we have to go.